I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You got convicted by jury or did you plead guilty? By jury, 11 to 1. Found guilty. What was your sentence? My sentence was six years. And the six years was for what? Conspiracy to import drugs? My six years was for the invasion of prohibition. Invasion of prohibition? Well, what does that mean? I'm a voice. I feel like, especially within the female um, prison community, there's not many female voices. Women are women, innit? They're like... <laughs> You have the odd person that might try and slice someone for a first because they won't let them use their straighteners, but nah, on average, nah, it's not that violent. To a predominantly white prison where there's predominantly white racists, it was like, yeah, you'll get, we're gonna punish you, you know, just, just being so microaggressive, yeah, and just showing so much institutional racism. I'd never experienced that in my life. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of Second Chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. Our guest this week on Second Chance is Leona Townsend whose vibrant personality shines through as she shares her experiences with us. Leona provides her unique perspective on the Heathrow drug gang scandal, in which luggage handlers smuggled £32 million worth of cocaine into the UK. It's clear that her past does not define her, and she is now an advocate for helping those in prison today. Leona has been incarcerated in half of the women's prisons in the UK and she gives us a true insight into what it's really like behind a bad girl image. Her story highlights the urgent need for reform in a way we approach women's prisons both in the UK and globally. The basic needs of female prisoners are not being met and the psychological effects are devastating. 
As part of my foundation's work, we are currently researching women imprisoned, so please reach out if you would like to help us make a difference. Leona's story is truly captivating, and she encourages women to speak up and share their experiences. She is leading the way to help change the silence and fear of speaking out. Thank you, Leona, for sharing your life and words with us. Leona, thanks so much for coming on to my podcast today. It's a pleasure to meet you. Now, um, I want to talk to you about the fact that you were sent to prison um, as part of this kind of conspiracy to import drugs. But before we go into that conversation, I always think it's important to to learn a little bit about who you are today, you know, the person that you would describe yourself as, as opposed to some of the reports that were written about you at the time that you were going through, no doubt, a troubling time, challenging time in your life. So who are you today and what do you do today? Okay, so today um, I'm an ambitious woman um, who's striving to support others um, that have been through the same situation as myself, as well as the IPPs and um, lifers as well. I'm an empowering woman, <laughs> I believe, um, and I'm very inspiring, I believe, also. So, yeah, I'm just here today, today in my world today, to just support others, you know, and use my journey to do that. And and how do you do that? What is it you, you, you do in your world today to inspire other women and other people who may find themselves in a similar situation to yourself or to try and avoid those people getting into that situation? So what is it you actually do? Okay, so what I did is I went on to TikTok and um, I posted a video about a visit that I went on in Bronzefield um, after my release. And Bronzefield is a female prison, right? Bronzefield is the um, is the new remand prison that replaces Holloway. So I went back there after being released and it just sparked a lot of interest on the TikTok. So I started to do lives um, and started to just tell some stories, you know, just talk about my journey and it really inspired people to start telling their own story. I managed to get myself a peer, into peer mentoring roles and um, for work. So that's kind of where I am now. And, and why, why did you do that? I mean, you know, people often say those who come out of prison either want to go on and live a, 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 a secretive life. And I say that in the lightest sense that, you know, they just want to get on with their life and put what happened behind them unless they're a a, a kind of repeat offender of some kind. Why did you choose to use your experience to reach out to others and then go back into a prison to talk to others ab- about your experience? I feel that the reason I did it is because I saw so much in the three years that I spent um, in prison um, through the six locations that I was at. There was so much that I saw. There was so much um, that I was doing in, with the women, supporting, especially the young women. It was just quite upsetting for me to know that I'd known you know I'd known people that had been to prison throughout my life um, and I didn't realize the experience that they had had was what I'd seen and I just felt it wasn't right for me to come home and just get on with my life and just pretend that none of this stuff is happening it just didn't it just still doesn't sit well with me so and and how is that working out how how was posting something on TikTok, going to Bronzeville Prison, talking to others who are going through what you went through or may go through what you went through. How is that working out? What what difference do you think you're able to make? I feel like the difference that I'm making is I'm a voice. I feel like, especially within the female um, prison community, there's not many female voices um, of true stories. Like you said, people just want to get on. Some Most people have children as well, so they just want to get on with their lives. 
So, yeah. That's interesting. And it's interesting because people do and don't hear from women because women who have been to prison because the the space is taken up with the challenges that that they face with male prisoners, P- probably because here in the UK there are far more young men and men going to prison than there are women going to prison. I think the statistics you know, show that there's 60, 70, 80,000 men and there's only three or 4,000 women. Do you think that's why women's voices about their experience of prison and the criminal justice system get lost? Yeah, I do. I actually do because, um, like, while I'm in there, it feels like you know there's so many women to tell, so many women that can tell their story. But like you said, when you get into the community and you look at the stat and um, statistics of you know and the ratio of how things actually work, it isn't that many women. Yeah, it really isn't that many women. It's a lot more men. So yeah, that's probably why. So I think it's important to kind of just keep that going. You know, like we're here. You know, it happened to us too. <laughs> Do you know? And 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 it's it's interesting that you are somebody who is prepared, you know, to 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 openly talk about that that experience in, in the sense that you're not shying away. So so let's talk about w- what happened to you. So if I start by saying I read news articles once I'd been introduced to you about the fact that you were involved in a conspiracy that was headlined you know the Heathrow um, airport drug smuggling gang it talked about 32 million pounds worth of cocaine and cannabis coming from Brazil and maybe other destinations into the UK and that handlers at that airport were involved in ensuring that the drugs in suitcases were delivered to the right people so it circumvented customs to avoid detection and that it was you know picked up and distributed if it got that far what can you tell me about the the scenario is those reports are those reports a true reflection of of your experience of what happened so first of all i'd like to say that um although i was convicted as part of a conspiracy I actually wasn't part of that conspiracy. So in terms of the financial gain and stuff, I can't make a comment on that because I didn't actually make any financial gain. Um, I know the numbers were, obviously the media, the media switched the numbers. It was like 32 at one stage and it was 16 and it was 28. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, the actual, <laughs> it's so weird, the actual conspiracy actually didn't have anything to do with me. I feel like my involvement was based on maybe things I'd done previously in my past and the knowledge that I had of of things basically like a a flight, a booking, a flight booking and a ticket booking, just finding it, just sourcing it was literally what sent me to prison. Take me back then to the moment that you were arrested and walk me through your your experience. How did that come about in the first place? Funny enough, I don't know what, if it states this on the report, but this, this conspiracy started in December 2015, I believe. In March 2016, I gave birth to my, my daughter. And in February 2017, I was arrested um, on the 9th of February at my home. Um, I was living in with my daughter at the time. It was just me and her. Um, Six o'clock in the morning, like 10 police officers knocking on my door, telling me that they're looking for my phone. So it was like, I was really scared, to be honest. I didn't know what was going on. It It was a very big shock to my system at the time. Um, because I've never been involved with the police. I've never been arrested in my life. I've, you know, I've never been in trouble. So to see so many people at my door, you know, and it was just like, okay, so what are you here to do? They're like, well, we've 
you know, we've come, we're looking for a phone. Then it's like talking about this conspiracy. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm like, well, the phone's there. You know, they're like, we're looking for a picture of a suitcase in your phone. I'm like, well, you're not going to get it in my phone because I haven't, you know, I don't have any involvement in anything like that. So um, I went to the police station and it was quite a lengthy interview. And they produced a picture of a suitcase um, that they said they found in the metadata of my phone, which is not my phone, but my phone. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a scary day. Um, obviously, I had my daughter with me, so I had to arrange childcare. And it was like making that phone call to my mum saying, you know, like, there's police at my house. I'm being arrested for, you know, importation. And she's like, what kind of importation could you possibly do? And you've just had a child. I'm like, I don't know, but we're going to have to find out. And um yeah, that's the arrest. We can go in stages, but yeah, that was the arrest. And and during the interrogation by the police, the interviews by the police, what were they saying to you and what was you saying to them in response to the allegations they were levelling against you? Yeah, so they were saying to me that this conspiracy had happened, you know, a courier was detained at the airport and um, communication was, there was communication between me and this courier. So... Their thing was, well, you know, did you send the picture? And I said, well, I never sent a picture to my, I never sent a picture to anyone, which I didn't. Do you understand? I, I did have communication with this person for two days, but I never sent them a picture of anything. So, um, that interrogation was very much about the photograph of this suitcase. And when they found it, it was actually a blurred picture. I don't know. It, they said it came out my phone, whatever, but it was a blurred picture of a suitcase I'd never seen before. And, and my understanding is that the picture of the suitcase was an indication that this is the suitcase that the couriers, this is a picture of the suitcase that the couriers are to pick up when they arrive at the airport. And that was one of the methods that the police and the National Crime Agency say was used by the conspiracy gang to notify the courier of the right suitcase to pick up that contained the drugs. That's correct, yes. So that that picture was sent from somewhere and my phone was used to transfer that picture. So just to fast forward, when we was at court, the prosecution stated that there was no evidence of this picture being taken from my phone and there was no evidence of it being sent to my phone. So there was a you know discrepancy against, well, how did it get there? And that was for them to answer, not me. What, after your interviews with the police, was you charged with? I was charged with a conspiracy to import um, Class A drugs. And did you go straight into custody or was you released on bail to take care of your daughter? No, I was so I was released on bail. Um, that was in that. Yeah, I was arrested in the February. So I was released on bail and then I was charged in the April of 2017. Um, and that's where I was put on bail. Um, I was on nine to five everyday sign on at the police station and my passport was seized. And that went on from April right to November until my trial started. And what was it like in that period for you? Because no doubt you were fearful that you were going to end up going to prison, that you would lose custody of your daughter, all the the implications of now facing the possibility of imprisonment. What was that period between April and November like for you? I'll be honest with you. Um, between April and November, I was oblivious to what was going on. I had, I had no, there was no part of me that felt like I was going to go to prison. Because I knew, because in my eyes, I hadn't done anything wrong. I felt like this was all going to get cleared up, and you know, I'll get a a, re- a letter or someone saying, you know, NFA, da 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 da. I actually thought it was like very, very a lot smaller than it was. I didn't realize it was as serious as it was until um, I was given a solicitor 
who then started talking about like Columbia mafias and stuff and who he's represented. It was just like, this is a lot. I don't understand what's going on. You know, what's, because I, I, at that point, I still didn't have any evidence, like any physical evidence to say what I'd done. Um, also, on the 1st of April um, of that year, my house burnt down. My house caught fire. So that was quite stressful. It, it kind of took over presidents. Um, I had to move. I had to move area. I had to still come back and sign on to my local area at the police station. Some days I'd forget, you know, and I think there was one day where the lady said, you know, your name is not in the book for days. And I'd like, I've been moved to another area because of my house. And she was like, well, you're on, you know, you're on bail. You know, if you don't, if you don't sign on to tomorrow, we're going to remind you. And I'm like, is it that serious? Like, you know, I really, I just really wasn't understanding what was happening. How, how old was you at the time? I was 32. 32. So not a young woman. I mean, a young woman, but not a teenager of any No, kind but of um, because I, because I understand what I hadn't done or what I had done, it was just all a bit like, okay, so when do you just let me go then? You know, when do you detach me from this scenario? Because I'm not a part of this, you know, and that's what my interrogation was really about. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about because I genuinely didn't know what they were talking about. Do you understand? So, And what were they talking about then? Because at this point you're on bail, you were charged with being involved in this conspiracy. It has been reported um, in the media that your role in this conspiracy was to liaise with some of the other conspirators to book hotels and transport and things like that. What's your version of events then? Okay, so my version of events is this. Um, like I said to you, from what I understand, this conspiracy was happening from 2015, right? Um, which is when I, con- when I conceived my daughter. I had someone that was close to me. I'd consider like a godparent to my child who I trusted, to be fair, um, had no reason not to. So that individual is kind of the reason why this all spiraled into me being a part of this whole conspiracy, because obviously when they're looking at things like cell site and um, mobile phone communication and things like that, that is also what tied me into the conspiracy. So like, so my involvement came through just one individual. So out of those 14 people, I only knew one of them. And that, like I said, that person was close to me in my personal life. So I had no reason not to trust them in my eyes. Um, however, I was in quite a vulnerable state at the time um, due to like just personal issues that was going on that he was supporting me with. But I feel like that that maybe turned into a bit of manipulation along the way. I lost the question. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you talk about this individual because it's one of those scenarios that you hear a lot of where women are concerned who get caught up as being mules or, or other kind of victims um, or partial victims to, to crimes. They're manipulated by an individual. And I, I suspect that the individual you're talking about is a male individual and that you say you were vulnerable to this individual. Um, if it's not too personal a question, was you in a relationship with this individual? No, no. He not was a just a godfather to your, to your daughter. Yeah. And, and you talk about this individual manipulating you. In what way did he manipulate you that ended up with you becoming embroidered into this conspiracy? Honestly, I feel like because of the understanding and knowledge that they have of what I'm, my, my understanding of things in terms of that situation, like I had a bit of knowledge from the past. You know, I knew people that do, I did, did things, so forth and so on. So being aware of that 
And then also knowing that I was in a quite a vulnerable state with my daughter. My daughter was born um, like at seven weeks early. You know, she's, she was three pound 10 and she spent nine days in, in ICU. And um, that was my first child. So it was quite, it was, a, there was a lot going on. Um, the situation between me and her father wasn't the greatest in terms of communication. So I had him to kind of lean on. And like I said, I was so vulnerable and low at that, at that stage. Any, any bit of help for me was a positive bit of help. And on the face of it, it didn't look like anything was happening. Hence why I believe it was like part manipulation. Cause it's like, well, I know you're a bit weak. So let me just, you know, try and support you, but just keep you there so you can help me. If that makes sense. Um, cause what he asked me to do was, wasn't nothing great. It was just to basically, like I said, just, can you just look, look for a flight, look for um, a hotel? That's it. And I'll be honest with you, like I've had, I've, I've done a lot of traveling in my life, in my personal life. And I've had my friends and my family, like they've even asked me, you know, is this the right size for a hand luggage? Questions like that wasn't a big thing for me. It was like, can you just look for a flight, look for a hotel? I'm not going to sit here in front of you and say, I didn't know that that it was something illegal, but it wasn't my concern. It wasn't something that I was trying to be involved in. And I had no idea that it was a conspiracy as big as it was. Do you understand? So you accept that the calls you made on behalf of this individual to book hotels and travel arrangements may have been connected with some criminality, but you didn't realise how big of a criminal enterprise conspiracy no, it you definitely were being was. I can, I can honestly say to you that that was probably a, that that hotel and booking was ninety nine percent in my mind, even though I wasn't I wasn't consciously really thinking of it at the time. But it was like that person must be going to to smuggle drugs. That person, you understand, which is different to a multitude of people and and seizures and fifteen months of a conspiracy. Do you understand? That's very different. Um, I'm not saying that it's any better, but it's very different. You know, if someone sat down and said, "Well, you know, can you look for a flight in a hotel for me?" But bear in mind that you know we've done seven smugglings already and they've had seven seizures. But can you just do if the, you know if that was the conversation, I wouldn't be sitting here today. I do understand. And, and, and it does make sense. When you stood in the dock in the court alongside 13, 14 other individuals, I don't know if it was all at one trial. And now you are part of this conspiracy through the, the, the small activity that you took part in. What was going through your mind when you were stood in that dock being accused of being a part of this huge conspiracy? It was crazy. Like, I went to court for 10 weeks every day and my name got mentioned twice. So can you imagine from the very first day, you know, they read out Regina and they say, yeah, Miss Townsend Bartley. And then that's it. <laughs> like, so the, the, the trial was split into two. Yeah. So you had the significant and leading role trial and then you had the lesser role trial. But again, somehow, <laughs> even though I was told not to, I brought this person into my trial. I had, I didn't know I had the power to do that. They made me know that there was a way. You just tell your solicitor, this is what you want. I want him in my trial. So that's what I did. <laughs> Not understanding why. I just know that I know you. And if anyone can help me in this, you can. My solicitor is like, you need to do this by yourself. You need to rep, you know, you need to just focus on you. And I'm like, I understand that. But how do I do that without involving him? He's the reason why I'm in this. So it's like. So you were close. inviting him into your trial to give evidence on your behalf. To exactly. Show that you... So they was trying to place everybody in the, in the, in the trial. So that, like I said, they had him as a significant leading role figure. 
but it was contested by his solicitor. So he was trying to get into a, a lesser trial. So I was the person that they asked, obviously on paper legally, is like, do you consent to this person being in your trial? So I was like, he was, so I was convinced to say, yeah, well, why not? Not understanding that everything that comes after that, I'm attached to it now. Anything to do with him is now going to, we're like this now <laughs> to the court. It's like, well, they're in it together, you know? So yeah, it was, it was strange. Um, like I said, there were seven people in my trial. They were all lesser roles. It wasn't, I still wasn't in court mode. I don't think anyone that was there was like in that seven because, you know, you had some members from the um, the airport, you know, like this old guy, bless him. He literally didn't do anything wrong and he got off. But just the mood um, of the people in there, you know, like you had one guy, he was like, I don't know what they're talking about. You know, I'm innocent. And, you know, it's cliche. You hear that all the time. But he was innocent. He got, he got acquitted, you know. So just that mixture of people coming into a trial because no one knew each other. This is, this is, this was the craziest thing. It's like when you get arrested and bailed, it's like, you know, you can't see these 14 names. I'm like, I don't know these people. So when we go to court, it's like, you're not in court on a conspiracy with people, you know, you don't know these people. <laughs> no one knows anyone. <laughs> it's weird. You got convicted by jury or did you plead guilty? By jury, 11 to one. Found guilty. What was your sentence? My sentence was six years. And the six years was for what? Conspiracy to import drugs? My six years was for the invasion of prohibition. Invasion of prohibition? Well, what does that mean? Raf, I've been asking this question every day. On my DBS, it comes up as an invasion of prohibition. It's quite um, upsetting because it would make sense if it was just a conspiracy to import drugs, but I had no role. There was no role, you know, like the media has lied so much about my position because I didn't have one. So when it's all done now, you know, I was in there, people were saying, you should appeal. You know, they're reading my papers. They're like, you shouldn't be in here. I'm like, well, that's what they said. You know, I'm not going to fight the law, am I? <laughs> not not really. And um, yeah, six years for an invasion of prohibition, knowing something and not telling the police, basically. That's that's really interesting. You've got six years for that and you go to prison. What happened to your daughter when you were sent to prison? My daughter was looked after by my amazing mother and my amazing sister. Um, yeah, they did. I, I love them so much. They've done, they done so well. They just took her and it was just, it just happened. It happened so fast, but they didn't hesitate, you know. Talk to me about what your journey was like in prison. You arrive at prison for the first time. You've never been to prison before. You're now in this kind of environment where there are people there like yourself, never been to prison before, people caught up in the criminal justice system through no fault of their own. Um, and then there are others who are, you know, kind of repetitive offenders, if you like, or seasoned sort of in and out prisoners or people serving long sentences. What was it like for you, Leona? It was hard. It was hard to see women go through with that. It was hard. It was so hard. Like, where do I start? So my first day, I used to smoke weed. Yeah, so my first day, I had weed in my system. In Bronzeville, they have like three house blocks. House block one is for where people that are on methadone or that take drugs or come in, come in on a positive MDT. They go to house block one. General public normally go house block two. Um, that people that just come in and then house block four is more like the settled prisoners. And then house block four is for the double ACAT crazy people. So my first initial night was on house block one. So when I woke up that morning, it was like, 
I was in a, I was in a madhouse. It was like a madhouse. And I begged for like four days. I said, listen, I had this officer, Frank. I said, Frank, look at me. I don't need to be here. <laughs> Can you just put me somewhere where there's, you know, people like me that are just normal. It was too much. It was so much. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't cry for the first, I think it took me about three months to cry. I didn't know what to think. I just thought it was all very, you know, I went to court, I got convicted. And I think because I had someone else with me on my cons- on my conspiracy, another female, we both got found guilty on the same day. So we both went to Bronzefield together. However, I feel like because of the nature of, of who I am, she had a ba- she had a hard time. You know, she broke down, dropped to the floor and it was like, no, 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 no. We've got to get you up. We've got us. You, you can't go in there like that. I've watched bad girls. You know, we're not going to be in there crying and behaving like that. So my focus was on her. So when I got there, it was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, it's this prison. It didn't look like prison. That's what it was. It didn't look like prison. But I knew that I was sat on that bus and I got there, you know, I got a little bag, with like a plate and stuff. It still didn't register. It didn't register. I called my mum. She's panicking. She's like, oh, and I'm like, it's okay. I'm fine. I'll call you tomorrow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then I think after about three months of all that crazy stuff, like, yeah, we could talk for hours about that, but it was a lot. That that first six months was really hard for me, man. And um, by the June, by the July, I was settled. I was already in there like six months. I was settled. I was living on a good house block, you know, I was okay, like, I was in my routine, you know, I was doing, I was, I, I struggle with um, cleansiness. So I took over the the surgery, the laundry room, the wing, you know, so by that time I was like, okay, we can do this. And then um, i never forget, I used to watch Good Morning Britain and I watched Good Morning Britain every morning, that's from six o'clock. And I got up this morning, that morning, and um, on the 26th, and I saw my nephew on the news and um, yeah, it was like, it was a whole story about how he had been murdered. So it's just like, so it was just weird. I thought I was dreaming. And I remember calling my sister and she was actually like at the scene, at, like, at the hospital. It was just weird. I still hear the noises in my head, like to be honest. So that, that just like finished me off. Like, okay, you've just got to jail. You've just got used to not being around your daughter. Like you're getting visits every week. And then this happens. And it's like, what do you do now? So I literally, I turned into like a crazy person. I didn't fight a lot, but I had, I had one fight, but I was just like, <laughs> I was moving like a crazy person. I started smoking spice and everything. Like I could not cope with that. And then my birthday came, my first birthday. So obviously I got reminded in February. So my first birthday came, which was August. So then you've got my nephew in July, June, and then my birthday in August. It's like, oh my God, it's my first birthday in jail. <laughs> so, so I remember, I actually remember I had my bank card details and I remember putting um, um the Metro Bank on the pin and ordering myself flowers from my card because I just needed something. And I did it. So I did it like every week. And I used to do it because I used to make, because the officers used to have to come and bring it to me because I was like, Wah! They still had to bring it. So I'm like, oh, they're my flowers all day. You know, it was it was a way for me to cope, to be honest with you. Um, anyway, 6th of August, my birthday. And at that time, it was like, we're trying to get people out. People were crying. I used to see people cry like, I don't want to get shipped out. Like, they'll just get a slip through their door. And then in the night and then in the morning, they got to go. I was in there six months. I was actually so settled. And then I got that slip the night of my birthday. I was like, I ain't going. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. I'm not ready to leave yet. 
Like, this is a lot. I've just got used to being in prison for the first time in my life around so many different humans. Some I've never met in my life. You know, the types of criminals never been in. Give me a minute. So I was like, I'm not going. I appealed, you know, as you do, you appeal and you appeal. And there was like, no, you got to go. And then I ended up going to Downview. <laughs> that was prison. That Bronzefield there, that was a holiday camp. That their bronze, that their down view, that's prison. That's real prison. You know, the big boots and the slow walking down the the, the hallway. Yeah, that bad girl stuff. That was prison. So I again couldn't cope. I was like, what the hell? I'm in a room. My bed's here, and there's a toilet like looking at me while I'm sleeping. I'm like, this is not right. This can't be jail. This can't be right. And then we went to. I remember my. I was with my a little girl that I met there, and um. Because I hid. Before we left Bronzeford, I hid. I hid on the house block. I was like, I'm not going. And they had to come and find me. The girls had to pack my room because I was not leaving. So my little friend T, she was like, come. You know, I'm on the bus with you, innit? We're going to be all right. I'm like, trust me, he's with me. You'll be fine. So I thought, you know what? She's been in and out before. She, you know, she's, she moves like she knows what she's doing. I trust her a little bit. So she got me onto a good main, um, a good house block in Downview where I was settled. I had like a massive room. The office used to say like, Oh, you know, you're, like your suite's ready, your highness. You know, take the piss. Because my room was actually massive. I had like, a my bed was on a platform. I used to paint. I used to get the girls to come in for maintenance and paint crowns on my wall. Paint my, um my what do you call it? The pipes black. Like, yeah, I was living. I was living because I thought, I'm not going home. I've got, I've got to stay here for three years. Never did I anticipate that I would have to spend my three years in six different locations. I never, ever anticipated that. So, um. I was just setting and in down view, you know, but I was still grieving. I was still going through so much. And I had picked up this little habit. What That didn't make no sense to me. The um, habit being taking spice. spice. Yeah. When, when you were being moved or told you were being moved from Bronzefield after you had a sort of breakdown in the sense that you'd lost your nephew, no doubt frustrated, you couldn't do anything to support your sister physically because you were away from the family you turned to spice and other drugs, you turned to spice to cope. Was you being moved because you'd been deemed a volatile prisoner or was it just your turn in time of the length that you'd serve? It's time to move you on to the next establishment. Yeah. And with Bronzefield, they're very about getting you out. Like once you're sentenced, because it's a remand prison and the turnover and the double ACAT situation, they try to do that turnover quickly. Like you can go to court today you just got to know that they could tell you to go in two days time because you're sentenced prisoner now. Now you've got to go sentence jail. Right. Whereas I was told that I didn't have to go straight away. I was told that I didn't have to do that, apparently. You know. <laughs> you ended up in Downview. Was you, because I know you say you were settled in Bronzefield. Was you, was it that you were scared to go to Downview? Was it because you were now settled in your routine and the way that you did things and you had control over your life, although your life was being controlled by, by the system, no doubt? Was it about being scared to go to another prison because you'd have to start all over again? You'd have to face new prisoners. What was it that was making you reluctant to move from that establishment? Uh, my space, my cell. My room, as I called it, I never really called them cells. There was always rooms because cells have bars. I had windows. <laughs> so I always say, like, I was in my room. My room was, um, anyone that knows me from there will tell you, my room was like home. How I lived, like I said, I, I had a good relationship with the with the 40 women on my wing. 
you know, they would allow, they would gladly have me cook, you know, not cook, but clean, clean the wing every day, wash all of their clothes and serve all of their food by myself. They had no problems with that. So we could live, you know, I found like people relied on me and I maybe relied on some people as well, just for their presence, just to get through certain days of the week, depending on what, what jobs we have to do. And, you know, just depending on the dynamics of the wing, like when you, as you know, when you live on a wing, you just have, there's dynamics that just work, you know, and if someone, it's like when someone leaves and goes home, they don't, you don't, they don't, you don't realize how much that their presence was needed on the wing until they actually went home. And then when someone new goes in their room, it just changes the dynamics again. It's like they never, it's like they were never here. It's so weird. So um, I didn't know that because that was my first wing. So I was like, I don't want to leave this wing. Like I'm, I'm safe with you guys. Half of you are lifers. You're not really going anywhere. You know, some of us have got the same alert for time. We can do this. And then it was like, you got to go. I'm like, no. And so you were moved. You ended up in Downview. And then you talk about going to six other prisons. There's only, I think, 10 or 12. 12. So there are 12 female prisons. You ended up going to six female prisons, which I'll is half of I went back to Bronzefield again. So yeah, we'll right. say I moved six times, but I went to five different jails. So Downview was the second prison. What were the other prisons that you ended up going to? And why was you moved to those prisons? I'll try and um, do this as in, a, in speed. But um, so Downview, again, it was a lot. But as you know, what happened in Bronzefield. So I'm now in Downview, starting again. I was very settled. So now it's like new officers, new everything, new food. You know this, new food routine. Service not always at the same time. Dinner's not always at the same time. We're not getting the same quality of food. The jobs are not the same. You know, the wages are not the same. Everything, just nothing. The governor is not the same. So you've got to get on with that governor now, you know. It's weird. So Downview, I was broken, broken, broken. So I had that room and it was my safe space. Again, I, I found that with these cells and rooms or whatever you call them, those were my safe spaces. That's my space. You know, I had my own bed sheets. You know, I'd, I'd draw pictures. I'd, I'd just make it homely. Sometimes I feel like that was not a good thing to do because I feel like the officers hated it. They hated me. They hated the fact that I was so strong. You know, they put me on basic for 50, 52 days. And I'd sit there and then every 28 days they'd come back and they'd, and they'd find a reason to reactivate the 28 days from before. Just for those who don't know, what is basic? Okay, so basic is like where you get stripped of everything <laughs> back to basic. So in your cell, you normally have a television. What did it take? Yeah, you normally have a TV and you normally get like um, two, three lots of association throughout the day. So they strip that. They strip all your association. They strip your right to go and get your own food. You know, they bring it to your room, your cell. It's like being in your cell 99% of the day for however long they choose, you know. But um, I, I love music and I had my own set with speakers, so I was fine. I read, I like to read books. TV wasn't really my thing, but I realised that was their little dangling carrot, you know, like the telly. So I made a point, like, you know, keep your telly. You know, what I have, you can't take. Do you understand? Which is my music. But we'll get to that because they did. But um, <laughs> So, yeah, Downview. Again, a lot happened. I was under a lot of security observation, which I wasn't aware of. And I do know it's because of the spice. So when I got to Downview, I feel like on my security file, there was something flagging. So every week, from the week I got to Downview, I was getting a room spin. Every week. And that destroyed me because that invasion of privacy, like even now in my house sometimes, I feel funny about that door. Even though I know no one's going to come and kick it off, but it happened so many times yeah, I'm traumatised. I'm not going to lie. I'm traumatised. 
So that happened. They gave me a lot of hell. And then I remember one morning, I got so used to the room spins and the MDTs and the this and the, the random, random, that this morning I got up, seven o'clock in the morning they came, four of them this time. They was like, yeah, we're going to do a room spin. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Put on the prison issue and started walking to the listener suite where they keep you, right? They're like, no, 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 we're going this way today. So my offender supervisor's in this in this batch as well, right? The main wing officer, my my offender supervisor, like like the officials were there. But I didn't really think about it until obviously now. Um, they've walked me to a whole different department, which is close to the SEG. Yeah. And they put me in a room and they've left me there on a different wing. Like I think it was the methadone wing. So my friend has come and she's like, Lee, what are you doing here? She knows I don't smoke drugs. So she's like, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. This is where they put me. She said, you're getting shipped out, mate. I said, what do you mean? She said, listen, they're ghosting you. She said, they'd never be on here otherwise. I was like, what? I didn't even know that was. I was like, ghosting me? So then Mr. Sloan comes with his Irish accent and says, you know, we've had enough. There's just too much intel and you got to go. You know, you're going to Foston Hall. And I'm like, where's Foston Hall? He's like, Derby. I'm like, I just cried. I was like, Derby? Like, my child. I just know that's like a two-hour-odd drive from London. How am I going to see my daughter? You know, lo and behold, they took me out of that room. There's the bus. There's all my stuff packed already in the bus. So I'm like, okay. But I'm already smart by now. So I've got a copy of my prop card because you love already tried to rob me. You know, you know how the system is. They like to do these things. So I had a copy of my prop card and I had a list of everything in my room because I never trusted the girls either. So I had a list of everything in my room. So, um, yeah, they, they shipped me out. Three and a half hour drive. Me and my, me and another girl that I know, good friend of mine now. We, we're, we're still very close because of that experience. Because, you know, and I'm being honest, there's two black females being shipped to Derby, you know, to a predominantly white prison where there's predominantly white racists. It was like, yeah, you'll get, we're going to punish you. That's what we're going to do. We're going to really punish you. And that's what they did. They sent us to Foster North. It's like the worst prison in the whole entire world. Well, you might beg to differ, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of experience, so I could probably. But as women's prisons go, why would you say that that was worse than Downview? Because you described Downview as a prison, um, as a place where it reminded you of the bad girls image that the, the, the drama used to have. What was it about Foston Hall that was so bad? Well, uh, just, to, just to go back, as much as Bronsford was a shock and it was like that, it was very structured. So, you know, you had... The blocks were structured. The people that was enhanced, meaning that they, you know, they're living above and beyond the prison expectation. They lived on a whole different wing. They had a whole different routine. You know, excuse me, you had um, D wing, which was the open rotter wing. It was just very structured. You had a lot of different jobs you could do. There was a lot of, I did a lot of positive things. I did a, I did a 12 week. See, this is the thing. I did two weeks of a 12 week inside out program with students from the University of DeMont, DeMont University, Leicester. So they came in as 12 students to work with 12 prisoners, but as part of their 15 credit um, for uh, their criminology, towards their criminology degree. So Downview was like good in that sense. That's why I didn't want to go. It was like, oh, I can, I can, you know, excel. I can do things. You know, Max Spillman was there, London College of Fashion. Like, you know, there was actually things to do. So going to, going to Foston Hall, I was already, I already started my criminology degree. So when I got there, it was literally a, it was a conversation about how do I get, how do I continue with my degree? You know, still waiting, even now, just saying. So that degree never got completed because nobody contacted my tutor. I can't contact him. I'm a prisoner. Education department have to do that. But when you send two black people to a prison where there's only 
five black people in the whole entire jail. Officers are telling you that you got, you're showing too much black skin. Just being so microaggressive, yeah. And just showing so much institutional racism. I'd never experienced that in my life in that way. The lady in the kitchen, um, Jane, big up Jane. You know, Jane, Jane understands and she hired me. She had me in the kitchen and had me on her band five. I was cooking for the prison at that point. She was like, what do you want to eat? You know, what do you want on the menu kind of thing? Because she felt it for us. You know, they just shipped us into the middle of nowhere. You know, people calling you duck. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> I was proper like, what do you mean? I'm a duck. I'm like, you're a cow. <laughs> you know, you're like duck. I'm like, you're like cow. You know, it was it was banter, but it wasn't funny. It was not funny. It was like, and I used to come on like, they call people ducks up here, mum. Like, it ain't for real. But there's a lot of life. There's a lot of, yeah, the level of crime in that in that place, mate. Was my, which what is what makes it worse? You know, the worst place I've ever been. The likes of Lorraine Thorpe was in there. Yeah, loads of names. Even men, not transvestites. But I experienced them um, having to live in a jail with a man. I've never been able to speak about this, to be honest, because other than on my TikTok platform, and they're just live, so if you catch it, you catch it. But um, when I try to explain to people like what I've actually seen and as to why this is so important for me to talk about forevermore, and I don't think I'm ever going to stop trying to get justice in the system um, because I just I just think things are unfair, you know, from officers abusing women to allowing men like yourself that look like you, Raf, um, to live in the prison you know, and have relationships with the women in the prison who are lifers, you know, really, really serious murderers. Yeah, this happened. This happened in um, Fostenal. And his name was Ty. Everyone knew him. Everyone was like, hi, Ty. You know, it was like the norm. I'm like, what is this? Like, I didn't sign up for this. I honestly feel like on paper, maybe, on paper, maybe. It had to be on paper for you to be there. But I'm telling you now, I sat in my room and I heard someone go, see me. So I looked out the window and I saw this man pushing the um, the survey trolley. And I thought, I just thought it was a maintenance man. Yeah. And then they, and then he turned and we used to have this, they used to make us wear these, um, you know, the illuminous, like the visor, like what, what um, security man wear. We used to have to wear those. Yeah. And if you didn't have it, you get IEP, right? So he's turning, he's got a back thing. So I'm like, how does that work? So we get unlocked. So I say to my friend, I say to my friend who's been in jail in and out for like 30 years. I'm like, who's that? She's like, oh, that's Ty. I said, I never signed up for this. There's a man living in the jail. She's like, yeah, but he's a, I said, no, 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 no. This is a lot. This is a lot. This is a lot. This is a lot. So that was one. You know, they used to, they used to, they used to give the girls tools to cut themselves in that jail. You know, officers will give women big jars you know, glass jars that you're not supposed to have to um to harm themselves. So when I say it's the worst prison, it's the worst in every way. Like there's no there's no system put in place to help them. It's supposed to be a therapeutic prison, but the most they have is a sanctuary full of animals and they give them budgies that they kill and then replace. Because all the life is in that jail get budgies. You get a budgie. Some of them kill the budgies. You know, I don't know what happens. It's like having an argument with your friend, but they end up having an argument with the budgie and the budgie, budgie dies and then they get a replacement budgie. It's like, so with that anti and the racism and, 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 you know, and you know how it is when you go from prison to prison, you've got your prop. So I've gone there with my prop, 13 of my CDs, 10 of my books, missing, gone. I'm like, okay, so where's my stuff? They're like, no, this is all that come. I'm like, no, 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 no. I left my room with everything. 
They shipped me here. They stole. So what they did, what Downview did is they stole. See, the, the institutional racism starts from early. So they stole all of my Sunday music CDs, if I'm honest with you. So my Beris Hammonds, my Chronics, my Dennis Browns, and my Garlic Silk, they stole them. They stole my books, you know, some powerful books that I was sent in. And these are things that officers saw me reading every day. They saw me, they heard me listening every day or every Sunday. They, I had my own, you know, I was too happy, too comfortable, you know. So I was stripped when I got to Bronzeford of a lot of my personal things. And then they've got different rules up there. You can't, what's that magazine again? Inside Time. No, you could only buy from the catalogue. What was the catalogue? Oh, Little John's or something, Little Woods or something, is it? No, no, no. Oh, you're going way far back. No, they got a catalogue where you can buy Playstations and CDs. Oh, and right, okay. I can't remember what it's called now. but um, So that prison, everything you had to get was from the book. Where did you go after, after that prison? Because you talk about going to five prisons. So you've been to three. What were the other two prisons you went I to? I went back to Foston Hall. I mean, sorry, I went back to Bronzefield because obviously um, I needed to get back. Um, I appealed, sent letters to my solicitor, tried to get everyone involved um, under the Article 8, you know, of my, my rights as a mum. And I went back to Bronzefield for six months where I started to do my peer mentoring because by the time I got back to Bronzefield, the ratio of young women, young women under the age of like 25 was madness. I was like auntie, mum, sister. It was a lot. It was too much for me. By that time, I was like halfway through my sentence. I want to go home now. Like I'm ready to go home. Like my head is in the right place. You know, I've learned, I learned a lot being up there about myself and stuff. I didn't get to see my family for a while. And, you know, and I lost members of my family as well. Um, not just my nephew. I lost 10 members of my family in total in that three years. Um, not just, and close family too, like brothers, grandparents, uncles, aunts, yeah, godparents, it's a lot. So I went back to Bronzefield for six months and then I, I personally asked for a ship out. I said, I can't do this, too much young people. They do, they, they want too much from me and I want to give, but I can't, I, I'm just, I can't do it. So I was like, I just want to go, um, I want to go get my rottles now. You know, I've waited this long, I want my rottles. So they sent me to send, um, which was in January, twenty twenty. 2020, and that was the year of COVID, right? Yeah, so I got to that prison in January. Remember, I've gone there to start my roles. I'm going home in a year and a half, you know. And this is the end. This is like, now you can start going out. Now you can start getting your childcare roles. You can start seeing your daughter once a month for four days. You know what I mean? Like, you can start staying at home. It, things started to look promising. You know, I was well excited. And that's why I went there. That was the progressive jail. You know, you go send, you progress. I got to send within... Three weeks of living on the open wing, lockdown. COVID. That was hard. I do, um, myself and a friend of mine that was in there, we're, 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 do, we're trying to do talks about that. I'd love to have a conversation just about COVID because um, that's a very, that's quite intense. But yeah, because with COVID came the George Floyd, came a few other things in that, that one little bit of time. It was a lot, it was a lot um, in there, you know, how we were treated. And that's where, I, again, I received a lot of racism in there as well, not just myself. It's just the it's just the institutional way that it's done, you know. And I speak with my my co um, my co host about the differences, the understanding, because she's white, I'm black. She saw it, she gets it. She don't agree with it, so we want to discuss it. Because how how does it keep coming about? So anyway, that send. Then I was in send from January till the November. Um, try, I tried to stay there because by that point they they refused my rottles now. So nice after COVID, nice COVID. Now I've done all the work and I've got through all of that, and I'm now here. They refuse my they refuse my open. I'm like under what grounds? 
Like, I'm going home in a year. I'm going home in less than a year. I'm due my open. They're like, no, not getting it. And then because of COVID, they tried to force it on me. Oh, well, you know, you can go to East Sutton Park now. So I ain't going. I don't want to go. Because you want me to go. Like, I wanted to go because I earned my open. You know, it was for me. Not because COVID's come and now the prison is losing prisoners because people are going home every day, but there's nothing coming in. So you like ain't got the numbers right. Um, and then, yeah, they shipped me to um, East Sutton Park. And that's where I spent the last 12 weeks of my sentence until I came home. What, what, what did you learn about yourself? Because as I listen to you, I, I sense there is still a lot of emotional trauma that was to some extent self-inflicted because, you know, smoking spice, which is described as a very disruptive drug, no doubt had an impact on your character, personality and behaviour. What, what did you learn about your, your yourself during these years in, in prison? Because as I say, when I listen to you, there still seems to be some emotional hangovers from your time in prison, which is evident in the way that you describe your experience, you know, being the, the subject of racism, being, you know, treated unfairly by the system and its routines. They probably have another side to the story saying they were dealing with maybe a disruptive prisoner or somebody who didn't conform to the system. However, they would describe yeah. there's always two sides the of the truth. story. <laughs> but moving on and thinking importantly, what did you learn about the challenges of your time in prison? Um, I learned that everything happens for a reason. I also learned that um, I was meant to be there. Um, I would never change that experience for the world. It was one of the best, worst experiences of my life. I learned everything I needed to know about myself as a person. See, I'm a very big believer. I'm very about um, into my relationship with the Most High. I do believe that there is a higher source, regardless of what religion or whatever. So I know that there's something, someone, somewhere, like watching and guiding and protecting over all of us. And I don't believe that Most High would put me in a place that I shouldn't be ever. So I learned to trust. I learned to trust in the um, in the journey, um, which made it a bit easier. Um, I learned to just be resilient as well, and be open, be honest. I learned a lot about other people as much as myself as well. Like you know, appreciating people for who they are, where they're at. Um, also, not deeming people like just because they've got this crime doesn't mean that they're that type of person. You know, we know it's evident, but it's not in all cases. So it really humbled me. Like really humble when it comes to people. Like, I don't judge. I used to be quite judgmental um, about silly little things. But me, I don't judge. I don't judge people because I've seen the other side, you know, and I see how people can use things to cloud um, what's really going on. I've learned that there's a lot of mental health that globally that needs to be addressed. I've, I've learned that trauma is real. And if you don't um, find a way to navigate through that and address it, it will ruin you. Um, I learned that my family is everything and I love them dearly. And... I learned that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to be vulnerable sometimes and it's okay to be, you know, where I was. That is okay. Like I've forgiven myself for that. I've taken accountability for the actions that I, con- that I contributed to for us to even have this conversation now. So yeah, I've learned a lot I've, I've, I'm, and I'm still learning every day. You know, it, the more I talk to people, the more experiences I go through, the more this transition transpires. I learn every single day. You know, I, I've learned... Change? What would you change? I mean, give it, I mean, you're talking about the prison system itself as a female, ex-female prisoner who's been to prison or a person that's been to prison and witnessed the things that you witnessed, experienced the things that you experienced personally. 
what do you think would make a big difference to what happens in female prisons? And I accept, and people have to accept that each prison that you went to is different for the reasons that you've explained and the challenges that they face, whether it's from a security point of view, whether it's a drug issue, whether it's a self-harm issue. What, what do you think is one of the pressing things that needs to change in female prisons? And I say that and answer that question, Yona, not to sort of make people believe that, oh, we need to make prison more comfortable for women, but more humane for people to serve out their sentences, which is the punishment, and not to continue to punish them in prison. Yeah. I think for women, I think um, being in a prison system, we're still women, so we still naturally have these um, motherly instincts, you'd say, like of cooking, cleaning, looking after. I feel like when you go to prison, you're stripped of that, and I understand you're being punished, but you're taking away the human part of your being. You're taking away what makes them a woman. So if you want rehabilitation, you have to reinstall what's, supposed to be there which is the love for you know the love for people you know the the skills to cook the skills to clean the, the you know the skills to be a parent the skills to be a friend all of these things would help I feel like once they understand that the ex-offenders that is you're never going to not have ex-offenders even if someone spends a week in a prison they are valid their journey is valid so having those people on board within the prison system to work with them through the system all the way out through the probation situation will make things better because you can't teach someone something about what they don't know. I'll tell you this, right? You know, what I used to do to the officers in Bronzefield the second time round because I was, I was all right with them by then, you know, they'd seen the worst of me. Now I've come back and I'm reformed. And I'd say to them, go in my room or my cell and close the door. Just go in there and close the door. Because I don't, feel, I've, I said to the governor, I said, maybe you guys need a program where new staff have to go into the cells and spend a bang up, you know, and a bang up for anyone that doesn't know is maybe like an afternoon resting period for them. So you'd, you'd have morning, you'd come back for lunch and then you get locked up for maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And then you go back to work for the afternoon. That period, I just don't feel like officers have no experience, um, of what's happening psychologically when we're in that room, when that door's closed. So I've always made a point that, you know, having them go in, even governors, just experience that, you know, because I've worked, I, the people I work with now, some of them have never been to a prison, but you work with ex-offenders. So there's there's always going to be that missing link of understanding because you don't even know what it's like to be sitting on a visit. You have no idea of any part of that system. So how can you help? Do you understand? I feel like the age of children, the age of officers should be hired. I don't agree with having these young, you know, fresh out of university, trying to live their best life, you know, looking after people, grown adults and supporting them in rehabilitation. Come on. And when you mentioned rehabilitation, in your experience, was there much, and rehabilitation can mean lots of things for different people, depending on what issue you're trying to address, you know, in prison. But generally, did you witness much rehabilitation going on? I mean, you talk about taking on a criminology degree, but not being able to complete it because of the movements between prisons. But you also talk about being given the responsibility of taking care of not just yourself, but other prisoners working in the servery, providing food and cleaning, and other women conducting other roles. Did you feel, do you feel that female, the female prisons you've been to provide 
proper rehabilitation programs if those individuals want to participate because that's key right if you want to sit in your cell and smoke spice or weed or or just neglect the prison system you're not going to make much change in your own life you might internally but in terms of skills education was that something that was evident for female prisoners they don't want to spend the money Raf. they don't want to spend the money so um when i was in brunsfield again the second time round i i worked for an a company called leap yeah who was an outside organization that came in and the lady that run that was amazing she trained us she trained four of us five of us including sharon carr to um deliver courses every day to the new prisoners that came in it was part of their induction so every day we'd do a conflict awareness course and then once a month we'd do a, a one week leadership course and myself and other members of the prison community would do that including Sharon Carr. We'd, we had that responsibility. That got stripped because of they didn't want to spend the money. But that would have worked. That worked. It worked. Like, you know, you got prisoners that was saying to me that, oh, you think you're a teacher, da, 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 but you get over that. But when you realise that the people that you're living with, like, I live on Hospital Free. I ain't no teacher. I'm just going to show you from this perspective, innit? Because I'm going through it too. So it worked. Like, people come in there, they come out a different person every day, every day. So I, I've even adapted that now. You know, I've I still use parts of that course now to support people because it works, you know, but the money, they don't want to spend the money. So the lady that was the trainer, she was she told me that she used to have to get a hotel, you know, Brunswick would pay for it. They paid for everything, but they don't want to pay. So that's the problem. You know, the government claim they want rehabilitation, but they're not willing to spend the money to put in the work and the time for it to be done. It's not hard, but you've got to spend money. You got, But it's like, why would you spend money on criminals? But why not? Because people don't just get up and say, I'm going to be a criminal today. Do you know what I mean? Like people get into these situations, especially women, through so many different circumstances. Like therapy is so needed. 99% of the women I met in there are in there because of a man. They need some help. They need support. That needs to be understood. It needs to be looked at. The structure of this country needs to be looked at. Why is it that, you know, of a certain age, women always end up in prison if they're in that kind of situation with a man? It's inevitable. But the... But the authorities and the charities and the organisations say they are doing that. You know, you read and hear about it all the time that these organisations, charities, rehabilitation programmes are delivering these services and these educational programmes and projects to female prisoners. And then they champion the success of these 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 endeavours. But from your perspective, someone who's been in that situation, you witnessed it, but you didn't see it happen everywhere and all the time where the beneficiaries, i.e. the female prisoners, could come out the other end and 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 look back at prison and think that's my past. You've done it. You've been successful in terms of turning your life around. You've come out, you talk openly about your experience to educate people. You're doing something to help other people, but you did that yourself rather than the authorities and rehabilitation programs sort of carry you through. So you see where we're going with this, right, Raf? That you have to rehabilitate yourself. You have to use what they show you. It's like, a, it's just a university in my eyes. Prison is university. Learn from it and take away what is going to help you better your life. That's the rehabilitation. Don't moan about, oh, what they didn't do, what they did do. Like, just rehabilitate yourself with whatever shit is thrown at you, you know? And I think that's what the problem is with prison. I feel like, because the stigma of prison has been what it, it is, yeah? Like, for me, when I went in there, I was like, I had to understand why I was here. You know, like, people, I met people that came to prison and then got released and they'd come back and I'd say to them, you, I don't want to talk to you. And they never used to get it. I'm like, listen, 
You got a chance to go home. You clearly wasn't listening to the messages that was being given to you when you were here. So that's why you're back. And what you're going to do is you're not going to listen to the message again. And you're going to go back out in the community and do the same shit again because God is speaking and you're not listening. You know, how much of that is the responsibility of the individual going out and falling into the trap of the cycle of their lifestyle as opposed to when they're in prison, as you say, the authorities have an opportunity to provide them with the tools, the education, the skills, whatever it is, so that their opportunities broaden when they get out instead of them going back to the same environment that's going to lead them down the same path of, I don't know, taking drugs that ends up causing them to shoplift, et cetera, et cetera. It's all in there though, isn't it? So I don't feel like they do enough. Like I met girls that would come back to prison just to go to rehab. But then by the time they get in there, whatever's going on in their in their head and their life, you know, they, they go to forward trust or they go to the mental health team. And then the, the waiting list is like forever. So by that time, they've now smoked something. Now they're back to square one again. Do you know what I mean? There's not, there's nothing in there for, like, they, they put everyone on a methadone script, like, and then they do things like they'll, they'll put you, they'll try and take you off of it, but not tell you how many milligrams they're, they're putting you on. You know, that, that stuff has big impacts on someone that's been an addict, you know? Tell me about your own experience. I know you talked about, you, you know, having a puff smoking weed before you went to prison and maybe a little bit when you were in prison. But then you turned to to spice, which is, I know nothing about spice. It wasn't something in prison when I was in prison. Heroin was, cocaine was, weed was. Uh, and the mandatory drug tests sent people to, to taking heroin because it doesn't stay in your system for longer and they thought they could beat the mandatory drug testing. But spices is something that we've heard about lots in the media in terms of the impact it's had on on prisoners and prisons. Why was it your get out? Why was spice something that you turned to to overcome the traumas and challenges that you were facing in prison? And what effect did it have on your personality and character? Um, nothing more than opportunity. It was there it, that I didn't have to go far. I didn't have to pay. I didn't have to do anything. It was just there. And also I was quite intrigued to, um, I was quite intrigued to what it was because, um, I remember spice from, the early 2000s, late 90s, and it used to come in a little bag and it looked like hay. Um, it was a legal drug and they used to sell it. I remember they used to sell it on eBay. I used to, I used to see it and I used to know people that used to buy it and stuff. They used to have black, gold, whatever. Anyway, so when I, when I was, when that situation happened with my nephew and whatever, um, one of someone that I met in there, she was like, you know, I want to give you something. But no, I said to her, what is that you're doing? She was like, it was paper. She kept ripping off these little bits of paper. And I think she used to sell it in there, right? So she used to, and I'm like, what is that? And she's like, spice. I'm like, what is that? But I, so I said, what do you do? Smoke it. So I was intrigued. I was like, you smoke paper. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> I need to try this. I'm being honest. That's exactly what it was. I was like, I need to try this because I don't understand. She's trying to explain. Then she's like, it's like a weed high. And that got me. I was like, what? It's like weed. Okay, let me try. And it was literally like a two minute buzz, like, Ning! and that was it. But because it was like a five minute nee, through that <laughs> through that situation, I needed it just to go nee, for a minute and just black out for a minute. I needed that. And then I started just then because that nee, was five minutes. I used to do it every five minutes. And then my behavior. Ooh, see, it's what's good with me that I still have contact with people now and I ask questions. And there's one lady in particular, you know, big her up. She's been released a year today after eight years. You know, she's celebrating that today. But she used to tell me when she got home, like, you know, this is what you was like. You was like this, this. She's like, I had to call my family outside because I know her family. And she was like, I had to let them know, you know, 
what you was doing. She's like, you was a mess. I was like, was I really? She was like, Lee was a mess, man. Like, and I know I was, but it was comforting to hear someone else tell me. It got to a stage where I didn't care who saw. I'd sit in, I'd just sit on my bed and my friends would be in there and I'd just smoke. And this one young girl and I was really good friends with her. She's like, what are you doing? You know, like, what is that? And that's when I thought, okay, maybe this is not a good idea then, you know? Because <laughs> to me, it was paper. Paper in a five minute high. It didn't do to me what I saw to do to others, honestly. Like that mamba in Fostenall, yeah, had people do, like, I think people committed suicide over 10 pound spice steps in Downview. Like, I've seen a lot, Raph. Like, honestly. So, yeah, I, I, I got through that. And do you know what? It was the withdrawals. I felt like I've never been in, I've never been on any other drug in my life. Yeah. So when, when I was, I'm going to say on that and then stopped taking it, my body was just doing a madness. And then I felt like I was having withdrawal. Someone, when I explained this to someone, they said you was having with heroin withdrawals. I was like, what? Sweats. Back my, my, um, I couldn't, like the way I was releasing my bowels, I'd never smelled anything so bad. I remember the toilets in my room. So everything's in heightened. I was like, I felt sick. I was like, wow what, a week of not having this? this is what he does. I said, I'm never smoking that again. And I never did. So it was just, it filled the void. Just just a couple of quick fire questions, um, just just for those ignorance. And I say this um, with, with, with the utmost respect for people's lack of understanding or insight into female prisons, um, because they get a lot of their information from the documentaries or the dramas that they watch about what happens in female prisons. So a quick fire question is female prisons as violent as they portray on television women are women innit they'd like <laughs> it's not you have the odd person that might try and slice someone for a first because they won't let them use their straighteners but no nah, on average no nah, it's not that violent no do women turn to other women for physical emotional contact as much as they portray it on television are you talking about is it is there anything in particular you're talking about well, I'm talking about, you know, sexual interactions because to fill a void. No, I mean, is there anything you watched? Because I was actually in Downview when that documentary was being made and I was in Foston Hall when that documentary was made. So that that couple, that's why I asked, because I want to be very specific in it. So that couple on the um, Foston, it's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. What I do understand is that women do seek um, emotional support from other women because we're women. It's a natural thing for us to be emotional. But when you're in that space that's in heightened with so much emotion, you're naturally going to turn to another, you're naturally going to do that. Not not necessarily being attracted to females, but it's the need for um, that emotional support. You understand? So yeah, but they're not real. They're not real. Not, not really. I don't think so. You know, I had relationships, with, a relationship, should I say, with someone that, and I'd say relationship because that's what I felt like it was because we both had a need and we both filled that void. Do you know what I mean? But it was for the struggle. It was it all institutionalised. It wasn't real. Do you think it's inappropriate for males to work in female prisons where there is a lot of vulnerability and emotional need that they can take advantage? You talked about it earlier about some male um, abusing women. Do you think it's as prevalent as it can sometimes be portrayed in in a drama, there's always in a female prison a male prisoner who ends up having a physical relationship with one of the females because he can. They portray that nearly in every film, documentary, or drama. Is it as prevalent as they make it out to be? It's worse. It's worse. When you talk 
Leona, one of the interesting characteristics that I'm getting from our conversations is it is the emotion, the reflection I can feel going on in your brain, if you allow me to kind of indulge myself. It's like I know you haven't been out of prison for that long. I think it's a year or so, just over a year. Two years. Thank you for appreciating that. Two years is not a long time, Raf. It, it, it's not a long time to release even one day of prison, isn't it? Because it's 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 something that will will live with you for the for the rest of your life. And there is lots of adaptions to make. And even when you make those adaptions, there are stories you've got to tell. God forbid, I I talk about you know what you have to explain to your daughter in those years that you were away as she gets older, and you have to have these conversations with her and steer her in the right direction that not only was that experience something that bettered you as a person because that's what you took away from it as opposed to it making that happen you know i i, I appreciate those are going to be really challenging I do conversations it now. no we can talk uh, about that she's seven we, we've talked we've talked about everything she's even done her own podcast how does she about um, you know the effects of how she feels yeah um i'll we'll speak about the link about that after but yeah because it's just fresh so i'd like slowly slowly but yeah she's involved she's involved because what happens is that because of where I'm from not I didn't mean to cut you but because of where I'm from um there's a lot of people that just don't know how to, I don't say they don't know how to behave but they just don't think so I was walking down the road one day and I saw a friend of mine obviously the last time anyone saw me I was on the news four years later I'm walking down Peckham it's like oh my god you're out of prison I'm like hello the child you know and I thought from that I thought you know what fuck this I'm not gonna I'm not going to hide it from her, you know? So I, we had the conversation because people are having these conversations around my child, but, and it's not their fault because you're allowed to talk, but I can't be a liar. I can't lie to my five-year-old daughter at the time and be like, no, 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 they're not. No, your mum went to prison. Yeah. And that's it. And, you know, we spoke about it. She asked questions. I was very honest and we, and we are happy and we live because what people forget is that my daughter went through that prison sentence just as much as I did. And Coming home wasn't just like, oh, my mommy's home. It's like, okay, you're home, but when are you going back to work? Are you going back to work? Are you staying for good? How does this work out? You know, I had to go through her emotions. How did you feel? Who asks the children, Raph? So I had to ask mine, you know. But it sounds like it's working out. It sounds like you, you're in control of it. You, you've taken it. And as you said at the very beginning of this conversation, you've empowered yourself in many different ways to do the things that you do in your life, in the work that you do, in the conversations that you have, in the relationship that you have with your, your daughter now. And, and what I find most inspiring is the fact, and it's something I advocate all the time, that you've embraced your experience rather than, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, people shy away from it and try and pretend it didn't happen because they see it as a stigma or a stain, when in fact, it's all part of some people's lives education. It's all part of some people's journey. And more importantly, it's what they take from it and how they use it to better themselves or other people or to enhance their, their life. So uh, my question is, what, what does, if anything, what does a second chance mean to you? Has it been a part of who you are? Do you believe people deserve a second chance? Not just people that have been to prison. It could be in any capacity. But what does a second chance mean to you, Leona? Everyone deserves a second chance. Um, you know, we're not given a handbook out here. We're just living this human experience, you know. <laughs> and I feel like it's important for as, a, as, as much as we say, like other people giving you a second chance, you got to give yourself a second chance. You got to tell yourself, do you know what? That was, you know, that segment of my life. I can start a new chapter, you know, like our life is a book. 
you can start and stop chapters when you want. So yeah, second chances. Absolutely. I gave myself a second chance because I felt like I deserved it. Um, I felt like, see, see, you, you call it a second chance, but it's just, it's just an adaption from what that one segment of your life, you know, and a second, maybe a second chance to do it differently. But then in saying that, I would never do the same thing again. So for me, it's not really a second chance. It's like, I don't know. What about other people? You mentioned walking down the street and somebody shouting at you, oh, you're out of prison. But what about people, and you talked about this a little bit earlier on, but people who you might go to for employment or for other opportunities, do you think that your time in prison and your conviction, etc., has hindered your prospects of doing things that you want to do? Does it stand in the way absolutely not it's actually it's actually heightened everything for me at the moment so um i i didn't have my media conversation so we're not going to say who it is but i work for an organization that actually is a experience-led organization um that predominantly works with ex-offenders um addicts and maybe people that have been homeless so there definitely is space i think they i think the government and the world is now understanding that you know we are important you know ex-offenders are important we actually could be the glue to keep everything together in this society and based on the experiences of inside life and outside life, that's the only two lives you can have other than death and, and sickness. Do you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I feel like very important, very, very important for me to be in a space like that. And also um, just the shame, like when I started my TikTok, oh, my God, I had like family members like, what are you doing? You know, why are you talking? Why are you chatting your business? And I'm like, it's my business to talk. You know, and then sometimes you have to have these conversations because people think, oh, you're going to talk about prison. And then you're going to talk about not what we're talking about, you know, the other side of prison, like just silly stuff, like things that happen on the wing, like parties or this or, you know, just irrelevant things. Like the things that I'm talk about and the spaces I try to be involved in is people that want to try and, um, you know, make a change in the criminal justice system. And there are so many people, but you've got to speak, you've got to voice your opinion, you've got to give your ideas and you've got to just stay in the right circles because the help is there, you know. What does the future hold? What what does your future hold? If, if I mean, I know I don't have a magic wand. No one does. Well, some people do actually. They can provide far more opportunities than than others. But what what I, I, I say it hesitantly. What does what does your future hold? What do you want for yourself and your daughter and your life in, in, in the coming months and years? And um, well, my my next like I'd say twelve month goal is to use this um, experience to heal. And then the way I'm going to do that is by setting up my projects, setting up my workshops, having events, you know, spreading awareness, spreading the word and building communities. So that's my plan. I feel like once I've accomplished that, you know, like and I've done my bit for the women inside, because, you know, a lot of people say I'm going to do my bit for society. Like, you know, no, I'm doing my bit for the women in jail because they need me. The people out here don't need me. These people, they got they got this. They need us, you know. So that's what the future holds for me right now is just. You know, being involved and establishedly involved in the rehabilitation of women, um, especially um, the IPP situation. You know, I would love if the, if you had that magic wand to, you know, have that residence where I can support these people on on a long term basis. Do you know what I mean? Because the IPPs is a whole another sadness. You know, so yeah, just doing my just doing little bits. And, and that's a, the, the IPP you talk about is is in, indicative of the, the, the criminal justice system broken. Last question from me. I've taken a lot from our conversation, 
that you've you've shared. What do you want people listening to this to take away from this conversation, from your experience, from your insight, from your sharing the challenges and the successes of you being involved in something that ended up with you going to prison, losing your daughter, et cetera, et cetera, everything that we've talked about and more. What would your final word be to people who are listening to this, who have no concept of what life is like for somebody like you who went through this journey, who, who are judging you based on what you've talked about in, in various different ways? What, what's the killer point that you would want them to take away from this conversation, if anything? Just understand that we all have our own life paths, you know, and God never gives us more than we can bear as individuals. Take time, be patient, be humble, be open. Be inquisitive, be nosy, ask questions, you know, because sometimes without information is not always going to be freed. So ask questions, you know, and just take a step back sometimes and don't put your own feelings and your own emotions and your own, you know, ideologies towards someone's situation. Like, you know, try to do the free one too. listen, learn and understand um, rather than judge. Respond, don't react. <laughs> Could go on. And I said it was my last question, but there's always one more. I I very late in life completed my degree in in criminology. Uh, are you going to complete yours? Um, I don't know. I feel like that was just for that time. I don't know. I don't feel like I should have been doing a criminology degree because it just didn't pan out. So it's interesting. I don't know. I I don't know about that. That's interesting. I don't. I don't know what I don't know what use it will have now because of the direction and the experiences that have changed. So interesting. Well, only you you can decide. Leona, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on my podcast. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated and we couldn't have produced this podcast without you. You can find the YouTube video of this interview on our channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe and watch more interviews with our guests. Share our episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platforms for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We pride ourselves on producing high quality content and our team works tirelessly to achieve this. Audio editing is done by Audio Avalanche. Original music is by J-Row Productions. Cover design is by Studio Minerva. And Sophie Warner is our social media editor. Kabir Lotto handles video editing. Kim Cullicutt at Second Chance Podcast produced this episode and I'm your host, Raphael Rowe. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 